I walked in the door and was confronted with the scene that I don't recommend anybody ever see. I saw my wife brutally stabbed to death on the floor. Well, over 24 hours at that point, they asked me if I wanted to take a lie detector test. Well, having nothing to hide, I agreed to that. In retrospect, and to anybody listening to this, I would recommend never, ever, ever in your life, if somebody asks you to take a lie detector test, to take one. To go out there and tell people that what happened to me isn't the one-off thing. It happened to people all over our country all of the time. So you're found guilty. Uh, in my mind, I'm going to be here the rest of my life, so I might as well, you know, get used to it. You know, when I was locked up in prison and I was writing guys' stories, you would hear one thing from the FBI or the investigators, and then I would order the Freedom of Information Act. And what I realized right away is that one, you know, the left hand doesn't know what the right hand's doing. And so... I would get stuff, you'd have the Freedom of Information Act would give me documents that the FBI said didn't exist. In my particular case, I had a perfect storm of somebody trying to set me up. I had a bad prosecutor. I had a bad judge. I had a whole bunch of crooked cops. Does that happen all the time? No. Do people get wrongfully convicted all the time? Yes. My whole thing is all of the things that happened afterwards is just as bizarre. Like every single aspect of this story is just pure insanity. Hey, this is Matt Cox. I am here with Russ Faria, and he has a very interesting story. He his it, it just an absolutely bizarre kind of murder mystery. It, just straight insanity, uh, um, just based on what I've I've looked at, and you know I'd never heard about this story, and I've been looking into it. I mean, it, it's 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 fascinating. Uh, well, I was raised in a small suburb of St. Louis, Missouri, uh, called Florissant. Grew up in a large Italian family there on my mother's side, uh, with frequent trips to Florida. Uh, throughout my life because it's where my father's side of the family is from and uh, just basic middle class uh, lifestyle growing up and then uh, we moved out to rural St. Charles County uh, when I was about 18 years old or so and uh, made that move there and started a new life out here and I guess a few years after that, I started uh, working at a local liquor store or whatnot. Uh, How old were you? Uh, about 21 by that time. And then uh, a few years after that, I was uh, frequenting a gas station that was nearby my, my house where I lived with my parents. And uh, this young lady by the name of Betsy was working in there. Wouldn't be in there quite often because there weren't really too many stores around the area at that time. And that was kind of the place to go get all of your little convenience items. So I got to see this gal a little bit, talk to her and flirt around a little bit. Actually, eventually she asked me out. And uh, <laughs> amazingly enough. And uh, so we went out on a date and she was kind of going through a divorce at the time. Uh, an unhappy marriage. She had been married a couple of years. 
and she also had two kids from a previous relationship prior to that. Uh, and so we started getting to know one another. Uh, she also had a DJ business. Her name was Betsy Meyer. And uh, she had been, uh, went to a local broadcasting school and actually was an on-air DJ in Florida at one time before moving back to Missouri and starting her DJ business. I had always been into music and whatnot, so that was another way that we kind of clicked. And uh, once her divorce was final and whatnot, I guess we kind of kicked it into a little bit more of a high gear, started getting a little bit more serious, realized that we had feelings for one another. And uh, eventually we got married the year 2000. Uh, everything, well, we had our share of ups and downs and whatnot, uh, indiscretions. Uh, things weren't always heavily and smooth like fairy tale weddings or whatnot. But uh, by about the year 2008, 2009, we were really doing much better than we had over the course of our relationship. Uh, then we realized that she had breast cancer. And that's kind of a kick in the gut, if there ever was one. Uh, if I ever had that news presented to them, can relate and understand that. Uh, so we went through the process of being treated for cancer and everything that goes with that. At the time, we were looking for a new home, uh, which we ended up moving in in a rural town north of St. Charles County in Lincoln County called Troy, Missouri. And started to make our life up there at that time. And what were you doing there for for a living at that time? Uh, by then, I was working for Enterprise Rent a Car in the IT department. So I had uh, originally was going into the office, and I was one of the first people, I guess, out there that was a little bit ahead of the curve. And I started work. I was one of the first people working from home. So I had. Uh, a home office in my basement and was able to be home with Betsy quite a bit. Uh, of course she had to drive quite a ways for her treatments and whatnot, but, uh, we were doing pretty good up there. And, uh, I guess around 2010 or so, the end of 2010, beginning of 2011, she was declared cancer free. And so we, said about celebrating for that uh one thing that we always like to do is uh travel and go on cruises and so she planned a celebration cruise with a bunch of family in france for november of that year and i guess right around october of that year which was again 2011 she had a doctor's appointment and the doctor ended up calling us when we were out of town on a trip and saying that we need to go see the oncologist again, which did sound really good. Hmm. And when we got back, we saw the oncologist and found out that the breast cancer had returned. And this time it was in her liver and basically inoperable. He gave us a prognosis of about three to five years on the outside, you know, if everything went great. And that was another really big kick in the gut. And we had to deal with that. And But Betsy kept a positive attitude. She was always a, a positive person. And that said, 
she kept the plans for the cruise that she wanted because it was more, uh, she decided to call it a celebration of life. And so we went on that cruise in November and she got to swim with the dolphins, which was a lifelong dream of hers. You know, I do a lot of cool things that would be on most people's pocket list. And we came back and had Thanksgiving prepared for Christmas and whatnot. And of course, kind of like, you know, you have somebody that you know isn't going to be around so much longer. You take a little bit more time with holidays. Take a couple more pictures, you know. Uh, buy an extra gift or two, you know, because you know you're not going to have them that much longer. And like, we kind of did stuff like that and had Christmas. And we had to have, I think, three or four Christmases with extended family and whatnot. But uh, we got those out of the way. And Betsy was actually staying at her mother's about a half an hour from where we lived because she had a, a chemo appointment. On uh, She stayed over there on the 26th of December. So she had a chemo appointment on the 27th. I had to go home because obviously I had to work. The Christmas holiday was over and the 27th was my day to go back to work. So I worked all day and I had a uh, prearranged, uh, it was a Tuesday and I had a prearranged game night that I had with some friends of mine. That was really only about five minutes from her mother's house. And I was going to pick her up on my way from that game night. Uh, that said, we communicated throughout the day, mostly by text because my job, I was on the phone all, all day long. It was really kind of hard to make a phone call, communicate that way. And so there were a lot of texts back and forth between her and I. And at one point she decided or informed me that um, she wouldn't need a ride home, that her friend Pam was going to bring her home, which was really odd to me because Pam lived about 30 to 40 minutes from us. I was going to be five minutes away and be on my way home. And so I questioned it. She said, no, yeah, she wants to give me a ride home. I said, okay, that's fine. Proceeded about my, the rest of my day. Left home and uh, normally on that night, I would have dinner at my mom's, which was about five minutes from my friend's house, but I had errands to run and I called my mom. Let her know those things and ran my errands, went to my friends and, uh, yeah, we smoked a little weed and watched some movies actually that night because not everybody was there. And uh, so we couldn't play the games we wanted to play. And uh, we watched a couple movies. Then we all left around 9 o'clock. I'd stopped and got a sandwich and headed home. I had no idea what I was in store for uh, from that point on. But when I got home, I walked in the door and was confronted with the scene that I don't recommend anybody ever see. I saw my wife brutally stabbed to death on the floor. And initially, I jumped to conclusions because you're talking about a person that was permanently ill, uh, also had had mental problems in the past and even attempted suicide in the past. So I thought that she had attempted suicide or com actually committed suicide at that point. Um, I knew she was no longer with us, and uh, actually, at least most people do. I went into shock, and I, I went to the next room. I called 911, which is what you're taught to do. That was probably my biggest mistake, trusting them. But <laughs> uh, the police came, 
I was escorted outside and uh, they proceeded to do an investigation. Eventually, after a couple hours, I was asked to go down to the police station. I really was not thinking straight as far as I thought I was helping the, the police and right. the statement. They asked me the same questions over and over again, which I repeated my answers over and over again. I mean, I've been taught my entire life to tell the truth, you know, and especially to those in authority. So my story didn't change. It didn't waver. What I didn't know at the time was they were out, uh, investigating everything I said, confirming everything I said, going so far as to interview the people that I said I was with, who confirmed that I was with. Um, and then they had me, uh, it's sometime the next day I'd been up well over 24 hours at that point. They asked me if I wanted to take a lie detector test. Well, having nothing to hide, I agreed to that. Uh, in retrospect, and to anybody listening to this, I would recommend never, ever, ever in your life if somebody asks you to take a lie detector test to take one. One is they're not admissible in court. Two is it's not an exact science. Three is you'll never see the results. I don't even know if the machine was on. It might right. I've never seen a result. We were told that the machine malfunctioned. However, at the time after my test, I was told, that I failed and that the cops use against people because they're allowed to lie. You're not supposed to lie to them. However, they don't have any rules saying that they have to be honest with you at all. Yeah. I was going to say the lie detector test is only used as a tool to help incriminate you. It's if it excludes you, then they disregard it. If it, it if it oh, yeah. says, you know what I'm saying? If it says that, if they feel that it's, you know, it's, um, it makes you say that, you know, if you failed it, then they're like, oh, I knew he was guilty. If it says, no, no, he's telling the truth. Then they say, ah, disregard it. It's not, you know, it's not, like you said, it's not admissible that they're only using it as a tool to manip manipulate the situation. They are. And, and it's not fair. It's not right. But, uh, in most cases, the, the police and people in authority are taught to get a confession or get a conviction not to solve a crime. And uh, that is what a lot of people need to realize. They can do it to anybody out there. Uh, so I was told I failed and then was accused, I think, over 30 times over the next 23 minutes. And then the little switch went on in my head. And I guess, you know, the shock was wearing off and I'm realizing that they're accusing me of something that I know I didn't do. And I says, you know, I've got rights here. I want a lawyer. Uh, the officer at the time said, oh, that does it. As soon as they claim they want a lawyer, that means they're guilty. And I was immediately handcuffed and then taken. Uh, they had to bring me to Lake St. Louis from Troy because Troy didn't have lie detector uh, test equipment up there. So I was brought back to Troy and put in a cell and for the first time in over 24 hours. And after begging countless times to make a phone call I was actually able to make that phone call uh, my family to my mom actually and uh, my cousin Mary uh, now famous uh, Mary Anderson was there and 
he and I had a mutual friend that was a lawyer. I told her to get a hold of him. His name was Andy Peeney. And he came up there and, and he got me out. He said, you know, if you're not going to charge this guy with a crime, you need to release him. And so that's what happened. I came out to a lot of press and whatnot. He gave me a ride home, my parents' house. And where I ended up having to plan a funeral and go through a funeral over the next course of several days. And then uh, it was uh, January the 4th of 2012, which is just a few days after that. I would think stormed to my mother's house and basically pushed past my father into the house and arrested me and brought me out to the car and charged me with first degree murder and armed criminal action. Now I was handcuffed, put in the front seat of a cop car in a seatbelt. And then a cop about two times my size by the name of Ryan McCarrick, remember that name, it'll come up a lot. Uh, he thought that that wasn't enough and that they weren't safe enough. And he decided that it'd be a really good idea to hold his gun in my head through the entire 30 minute bumpy car ride all the way back to Troy. Yeah. He's real nice. Uh, anyway, then I was promptly thrown into jail and booked and, uh, didn't know what was going to happen next. At the time, my cousin, Mary, who I mentioned before, uh, remembered a lawyer that she had used to work for. It was, had made quite a name from her, for himself in the ensuing years since she had known him. And his name is Mr. Joel Schwartz. And so she gave him a call and he had been following the case. It was already in the news. And uh, she filled him in on what she knew wasn't in the news. And he agreed to come and see me even before taking a retainer from me, which that kind of speaks to their friendship because that's something that normally a lawyer would require. But, uh, he came up to see me and, uh, that was the first person other than family and friends. First person in authority that I got the impression actually believed what I was saying and believed in me. And so I agreed to hire Joel at that point. That was probably my best decision. Um, and then we went through the process of preparing for a trial. Now, initially, Joel thought, this is a big misunderstanding. Well, wait, 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 did you did you get out of, were you bonded out? Oh, no, my bond was well over a million dollars. Oh, okay. Uh, but Joel initially said, hey, this is a big misunderstanding. You know, everything that you said is provable. Right. It's prove where you were. Every, you know, I'm going to talk to the prosecutor. We'll get this taken care of it's that's obviously a big mistake well the young new prosecutor miss leah asked uh basically did want anything to do with joel or anything that he had to say and uh so we decided you know it, we came to the conclusion that we would have to go to trial which we started preparing for a trial and then everything that's entailed in that well joel started doing his own investigation and there were, you know, a lot of things coming up. Person's name kept coming up by the name of Pam Huff. She was the person that gave Betsy a ride home that night. There were a lot of other details uh, that were coming up that she was kind of 
forcing her way into Betsy's day that day because Betsy had had other plans or whatnot. So uh, it was really beginning to look like she was the one who did this crime. Uh, and and that, figured it out. We couldn't understand why the police could. The, had the police even questioned her? Well, if you want to call it a questioning, I mean, they didn't really question her as thoroughly as they did me. And they kind of let her control the questioning. And then when they wanted to question her husband, they let her be in the same room. And she pretty much answered all the questions for him and let him sit there on his hands, basically saying nothing other than his name. Uh, they did a really shoddy investigation, to say the least. I mean, the Keystone cops could have done a better job. Okay. And, and it's the truth. The problem is I've watched like three different programs on this. Well, if you've watched the thing about Pam and everybody says, oh, it's it looks like a comedy. Well, the people that they're making you laugh at. Right. It's more foolish in real life. Trust me. Uh, they're just. Leah Askey had an affair with one of the lead investigators on the case. And every time he's seen her in the courtroom or anywhere, he act like a little puppy dog. You know, like a little teenager lost in love or whatever. Um, you had Ryan McCarrick, who you know, decided it was a good idea to hold a gun to my head, but also called me out of my cell not once, but twice without my attorney present, <laughs> you know, because he's trying to bully me. Right. He's, he yeah. couldn't find out, couldn't bully me. You know, I go back to my cell and then. We were originally scheduled to have a trial. It was going to happen in November of 2012. And kind of the way it works when you're sitting in the county jail, a wedding trial, you're kind of in a line, just like a line at a fast food restaurant or a store. When your turn comes up, that's your turn, and you get to have your trial. Well, my turn came up in November, and a couple of weeks or a week or two before my trial, we had a pre-trial uh, hearing right there's a lot of those that lead up to there but this particular one was going to be the last one before our trial and, and we were getting ready and uh, i got to meet with joel beforehand he says well what's going to go on in here is she's going to ask for a continuance and i'm going to say no not unless we could lower this guy's bond you know so he can get out and await his trial the judge is going to deny both of us and we're going to go to trial next week now the judge was a great guy by the name of Dan Gildine, who was scheduled to retire at the end of that year, and a new judge was already elected to come in in January. So we went into the courtroom. Sure enough, it happened exactly, almost word for word, the way Joel said it would. But great, okay, we're going to go to trial. We're going to win this thing. It's going to be great. Went back to jail, and the next day, one of Joel's associates came up and let me know that, uh, what had happened was that after previous day's uh, hearing, Leah Askey did something that I don't even understand why they're allowed to do this, but she dropped my charges and then refiled them. So basically dropped all the charges against me and then filed them all over again five minutes later. What does I that do? Start you, start you over in line? Exactly. You go right back to the back of the line now. <laughs> 
So after waiting almost a year for a trial, I had to wait another year for the next November in 2013 to go to trial. Well, we had a new judge this time, I think, uh, Chris Minemeyer, Chris Kunza Minemeyer, and that person actually went to school with Leah Askey, amazingly enough. And so she would deny Joel just everything and give Leah everything she wanted throughout all the pretrial leading up to the trial. Then we have our trial in November. Lo and behold, one of her cousins is actually on the jury. Wow. I mean, is Joel, right. Joel aware of all this, but he's just... Well, we didn't know this until afterwards oh. about the project. But, uh, you know, he was trying everything he could as a lawyer. I mean, he's very experienced, very good at what he does. And he's, like, citing all kinds of case history and that. And okay. even going into the trial, she kept shooting him down. However, I, I was still confident that you know, we presented a good case and we were going to win. But a couple hours later, the jury returned from deliberation and they convicted me. And so then I was sentenced to life without uh, possibility of parole plus an additional 30 years. What about the, I mean, what about like Pam? Was he able to um, present her as an alternative, uh, um, you know, suspect to you? Oh, no, no. Um, he wasn't allowed to use her at all. No, no, what they call a Saudi defense, which is some other guy did it. Right. Uh, they wouldn't let him use that or bring in the fact that she received a $150,000 insurance policy that was signed over to her four days prior to Betsy's death. It had been in my name for 4,000 days prior to that. The prosecutor was allowed to use the insurance against me but Joel was not allowed to use that as a motive for somebody else to do it. When he questioned Pam, his hands were tied. So, okay. So do you think that your wife actually signed it over to her? Or do you think that Pam manipulated the situation somehow? Well, handwriting experts have said that that's my wife's signature. So, and it looks like her signature. So I can't, I, I got to say that she did sign it. But I can't say if she was coerced in any way. Okay. I was going to say, you had no idea she was, she had signed it over. No. If, assuming if she did, you weren't aware of it. Not at all. And so we weren't allowed to use any of that evidence. I was just, that was a good thing. It's not hard to get somebody to sign something. Um, right. If you're, especially if you're a friend, you know, hey, I'm signing this for, you know, this reason. Who knows what she... You know, she, you're not reading those documents. It, it could be it could be pretty easy to trick someone to sign something. I trust me. I own a mortgage company. People sign all kinds of documents they never looked at. Well, you never know what somebody is going to do. And, and this person, Pam, is very calculating. Who knows what she did to get that document signed? And you know, she's the only one that can tell us right now. And she's in prison. She's not talking. Uh, we'll get to that a little bit later. Uh, however. I thought we still presented enough evidence. I mean, it's supposed to be a reasonable doubt, right? Right. Uh, There's plenty. I, alibi, I had four alibi witnesses. Countless, I mean, I had several video cameras, phone calls, cell phone data that put me where I said I was, that said I was telling the truth. 
And for whatever reason, while some of the jurors and uh, subsequent interviews after my after my conviction said, well, they've known Leah all their life. She couldn't be lying. Oh, my God. <laughs> this is what happens in small town rural America. And, and I think it happens in big cities, too. Uh, but things get shuffled under the rug. So I was actually shipped off to prison. And wow. Started to get on with getting on, you know. Uh, that's what you got. You got to take the front What's that? You went to like a maximum security prison. It's murder. So I'm assuming this is premeditated murder. Yeah, I went to what they call level five camp, which is for everybody that's serving. That probably isn't going to get out uh, in the foreseeable future. Wow. Uh, Joel went to work on my appeal at that time. Now, we had a local news team in St. Louis, a uh, Fox affiliate, and a reporter by the name of Chris Hayes, yeah, who, uh, if you look up the Fox 2 stuff, that is the most, he has, he was doing updates like every month when I was in jail and prison just keeping my story out there in the media. I think that really uh, helped because I got a lot of attention that way. Um, another thing that happened was Dateline NBC was brought in and I did interviews with both of those, with Chris Hayes and with Keith Morrison on Dateline uh, from prison. And those things were aired and I was starting to get support from people not just across state or across the country, but I was getting letters from people across the world support. Uh, yeah, I, I did. I did a Dateline interview when I was in prison with Keith Morrison. Also, by the way, okay, uh, Thank God. I had a, a vastly different experience with him. Because oh, sure. uh, uh, me being extremely guilty, my I didn't have the I didn't get the same type of uh, treatment you got. I I can imagine. <laughs> But uh, yeah, so so that's great that they went in, and uh, I, I I saw part of that uh, part the part that's uh, on YouTube, part of that also, and I saw some of the coverage. I never did see the movie. I, I didn't watch the movie. I did watch someone who critiqued the movie, who basically the critic uh, they criticized it as being like it was almost like a comedy, and this is a very serious, you know, it was serious, but it was almost you know comedic, but. Like you said, it was, you know, in, in a very real way, it, it, you know, with the exception of, you know, the, the, the murder, it was comedic how bad they bumbled the investigation and just or really, I don't even know. Do you, do you, do you feel like that the prosecutor thought she was doing the right thing? Um, I, I honestly don't, I think she thought that she was doing something to forward her career. Okay. Right. I, she was uh, very career-minded. I don't think she was out for justice or anything. And then, unfortunately, in our country, that happens more than what people realize. And there's a reason for that. There's a, a reason that shouldn't exist for that. And one of the reasons why I do these interviews is to go out there and tell people that what happened to me isn't the one-off thing. It happened to people all over our country all of the time. And the reason for that is a little term that nobody should have ever heard ever is called prosecutorial immunity. Yeah. And yeah, they can, they can lie, manipulate, they can do all kinds of things and there's just no repercussions. Prosecutors can do 
anything they want and and basically makes them above the law. And nobody, nobody in this country or on this earth should be above the law. And it makes them above the law and they abuse that privilege to lock people up for years for their life or even have them be put to death. And so I challenge people and I say, these prosecutors that are found to be doing wrong and have people put to death, well, maybe they should be locked up for murder themselves because they're using the system to kill people. Right. What's going on, YouTube? RDAP Dan here, Federal Prison Time Consulting. Hope you guys are all having a great day. If you're seeing and hearing this right now, that means you're watching Matt Cox on Inside True Crime. At the end of Matt's video, there will be a link in the description where you can book a free consultation with yours truly, RDAP Dan, where we can discuss things that could potentially mitigate your circumstances to receive the best possible outcome at sentencing or even after you've started your prison sentence. Prior to sentencing, we can focus on things like your personal narrative, your character reference letters, prepping you properly for the pre-sentence interview, which is going to determine a lot of what type of sentence you receive. If you've already been sentenced, we can also focus on the residential drug abuse program, how you can knock off one year off of your sentence. Also, we have the First Step Act where you can earn FSA credits while serving your sentence. For every 30 days that you program through the FSA, you can actually knock an additional 15 days off per month. These are huge benefits, and the only way you're going to find out more is by clicking on the link and booking your free consultation today. All right, guys, see you soon at the end of the video. Peace. I'm out of here. Back to you, Matt. And there's a lot of other people out there. I know a few of them myself. If you've ever heard the name Brian Ferguson, uh, he's a good friend of mine. He also was from Missouri. Uh, look up his story on Netflix, Dream Killers. Uh, he served 10 years for a murder he didn't commit. Something he and I have in common. We were both convicted by a jury from Lincoln County. I, I interviewed a guy uh, two days ago that served 16 years for a murder rape that he was 16 years old that he, he didn't commit. They, they even found uh, semen from someone else. And all the prosecutor said was, well, she was promiscuous. She had sex with someone else and you. You know, you raped and killed her. No evidence, nothing. Same thing, alibi. Got a life, life sentence. And just so happened, the, um, the Innocence Project, after writing letter after letter and being denied by the Innocence Project, they were like, we're not taking your case on. He'd gone through the appellate court. He'd gone all the way to Supreme Court. They'd refused to hear the case. The whole thing. And he um, eventually, they, they finally, after 16 years, uploaded the DNA to the new CODIS system because it hadn't been invented when he got initially mm -hmm. found guilty. So they uploaded it, and guess what? That DNA didn't go to another high school student like him. It went to a 29-year-old man who had since, in the last 16 years, murdered someone else and was currently in prison. So suddenly they were like... Oh. We better let this guy out. So they let him out and he got out. Well, by that point, the prosecutor, he's moved on. The judge, the same judge that sentenced him wouldn't even uh, um, sit on the bench to let him go. He had somebody else do it. I don't want to be in the courtroom. I don't want to be the, I don't want to be involved in that. You, 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 you cut him loose. I mean, yep. just pathetic. Just the whole system is just, it was just a pathetic situation. It's the same kind of, yours is. Yours is on honestly, they're, they're both just as egregious, but I'm sorry. Anyway, go ahead. You were saying, um, so you're found guilty. They're doing newscasts. There's an appeal on. Right. And uh, I went about 
you know, starting a new life in prison. I mean, hmm. uh, in my mind, I'm going to be here the rest of my life. So I might as well, you know, get used to it and make yourself start. comfortable. Put in for a two man cube, join the softball team, learn to play guitar. Right. You know, get a job. <laughs> right. So, cause after about 30 days watching TV, you've seen everything that's on TV. And so I got a job working in the kitchen. I'm like, well, you know, I'm in a level five camp. I only get out an hour a day unless it's a day when we got wreck on the yard. So I'm a work a job where I get out seven days a week <laughs> and I get to go to work seven days a week. So I would work seven days a week, uh, in the kitchen preparing meals. Uh, of course, when you work in the kitchen, you get to eat whatever you want to. So I was well fed, uh, with, with food and, uh, I was taken care of, but yeah, you know, like I said, started getting on, I joined, uh, a club called Toastmasters, which is, uh, it's a worldwide club. It's not just in prison. It's in, uh, businesses and stuff. It's, uh, teaching you how to network with people, do speeches, things like that. I, figure you can join a gang or you can join a club like this and get to know a better class of people. So I got to know a guy by the name of Rodney Lincoln in there. He's got a fascinating story. He served over 30 years on a crime. He did. Uh, I encourage people to look him up and look up his story. It's very interesting. Um, but I got to know quite a few people in there we get visits every week from my family and friends, which anybody that's ever been locked up knows that that's the one thing that can keep you going when you're down and out and the darkest place you've ever been. And prison is that place. Uh, visits from family and friends, letters, and uh, phone calls, they're the most important thing out there. And uh, I was fortunate enough to have a good support network in that respect, people encouraging me. And of course, Joel, you know, working diligently with his team of lawyers to get this appeal going. And uh, eventually he filed his appeal in early 2015 uh, with the Eastern District Court of Appeals. And they took a look at it. And I believe it was early March. I had come back from work and I was told that I needed to call my attorney. So I phone call with Joel and Joel was he's always the kind of guy that plays things close to the vest he visibly and audibly is never really excited about anything he doesn't want to give you false hope he doesn't want to give you hope false hope exactly Exactly. I respect that about the guy yeah but uh, on this particular phone call I could hear he had a little anticipation excitement in his voice and he asked me had I seen the news the night before well If you're locked up, most people watch the news every night because that's the only way you can know what's going on in the outside world. I said, yeah, I watch the news every night. What's the big deal, dude? And uh, he says, well, did you see anything on there? I says, nothing out of the ordinary, you know, what are you talking about? Car wrecks, what? And then it dawned on me, he's in St. Louis and I'm in Jefferson City. He gets a different news than I do. Right. I informed him, I said, Joel, you're a couple hundred miles away from me. I'm not getting the same broadcast as you. That's when he informed me that my story was on the news the previous night and I was ordered to Mooney motion, which basically says that new evidence has arisen that 
if it was presented in the original case, may have changed the outcome of the original case. Right. Uh, the really interesting part about that is I was only the third person in the history of our state to get that <laughs> over you know 200 years. So that was kind of a big deal. And so, what was the new information? Well, what was going on was that Betsy's daughters were suing Pam Hupp for the insurance proceeds that Pam Hupp said under oath and multiple times, Betsy had signed over to her to give to the daughters. And she didn't give, wait, she didn't give it to them? They never saw a dime. Uh, Betsy was in insurance, so... Again, that's why I question that signature. If she wanted that money to go to her daughters, she could have put one stroke of a pen and said, signed it over to Pam Pup and put four and then her daughter's names. And that would have been a legal document and that money would have been entitled to them. However, that didn't happen. And she had been in insurance for over 20 years. So uh, again, that's why I question that signature. Uh, well, they were suing her for that money. And some of the information that came up in that case, the lawyer called my attorney, Joel Schwartz, and shared that with him about the insurance proceeds and different things that went on there. He presented that to the Court of Appeals. They liked it. I, Again, my, my case had gotten a lot of publicity, and I think, uh, it was a blemish, and they were looking for a good reason to send it back. And Joel was the guy that gave them that reason, being a good attorney that he is. And so they wrote a very scathing uh, document back to Lincoln County, which basically said, hey, you guys need to have a hearing to see if this guy gets a new trial. If he doesn't get a new trial, we're not going to be real happy about it. So uh, immediately, the, the judge in my case recused herself. And because she knew she, by that time, she had been seen around town with her buddy, Leah Askey, and didn't want that to have to come up. Right. So they went about getting a new judge. And eventually we were assigned a judge out of St. Louis by the name of Stephen Omer. And he's kind of got a reputation of being a straight arrow and a fair guy and even a whistleblower among his peers uh, if he sees people doing things that are wrong. So... That's the guy we wanted. We're like, oh, this, all we ever wanted was a fair trial. We knew if we got a fair trial, we would win. Right. So we agreed on Stephen Omer, and uh, we had our hearing in June of 2015. And it was decided at that time that I would get a new trial. And the only thing that was really concerning Leah Askey at the time, because this was part of what was in the appeal, was that he wasn't making that decision based on the fact that she had an affair with a detective. <laughs> That's That was her main concern. Right. He didn't want that to come up. He said, that has nothing to do with it. <laughs> he says, that ain't going to come up in the case. He said, everything else here is very troubling, and this is why this guy is getting a new trial. Yeah, there's plenty to go around. And we're going to schedule it today. So they scheduled my trial for again in November. And then I had to go back to prison. <laughs> and uh, so I wasn't real happy about that because now I knew I've been locked up for about three and a half years. 
and I'm not some guy off the street that's never been to prison. Now I've been in prison. I'm now what we'd call a seasoned prisoner. <laughs> and I've learned a lot. Put me in a position to do that. Well, in my eyes, I was going to go in the hole as soon as I got to prison because I'm no longer convicted. They can't house me with convicted criminals. That's against the law. And there's people from the county that have to take you back to prison. It's about a two-hour drive. And I decided that I needed a cigarette, that they needed to give me one, and that I wasn't going to shut up for two hours. <laughs> and I gave them hell for two hours all the way back to prison. I never got a cigarette. I also didn't go to the hole because the paperwork takes a little time to get there. Uh, so that's a little... Hey. I mean, you're getting you're 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 not convicted. Why can't they let you out on bond now? I mean, at this point, you've got well, they can. They can. It did set a new bond, but I mean, this was just the same day, literally. You know, so there were you went all the way back to prison. You didn't go back to like the county jail. They just house you in the county jail. Well, you have to go back to prison first because that's where you live, and your property at the DOC, right? Once the DOC finds out that you lost or that you won that hearing and that you're no longer convicted, they don't want you anymore. Because, again, it's illegal for them to hold you with convicted criminals. So it was about three days later when I was called down and they said, hey, after child, you're going down to property because you're leaving tomorrow morning. I said, okay. And so I had to go turn in all of my property, do all the process of getting ready to leave. The next morning, I went back to Lincoln County, and this was on, uh, I guess, probably a Thursday or a Friday. My family came and saw me on Sunday, and my cousin Mary, my sister, and my mom were there, and they're like, oh, hey, you know, we're going to get you out soon. You know, sit tight. You'll be all right. We're going to get you out soon, because now my bond was actually something that was affordable. And they were working on it. I'm like, I don't know what your definition of soon is, but when you're on that side of the window, your definition of soon is a lot different than my definition of soon from this side of the window because my definition of soon is yesterday. <laughs> your definition of soon would be next week, next month. To me, that's not soon. That's a long time away. So they're like, we're going to do this soon. Okay. I'm not going to hold my breath, you know, I, I'm, I can survive in here. I'm okay. It's only a few months, whatever. Uh, so I went back to population. And then on uh, Tuesday, uh, that was one of the days that I had designated to call my mother. And I got up, you know, did my breakfast and shower and all that routine. And I was just trying to call my mom and couldn't get through. And so I saw, well, you know, she might be in the bathroom taking a shower or whatever. I'll call her in a little bit. Waited a little while and called her again. And as I was on the phone, standing there looking uh, toward the door to our pod where we live, the uh, the CO opens the door and says, a uh, couple of words that anybody that's ever been locked up knows, and everybody knows what it means. He said, my last name, Faria, followed by the words bunk and junk. And I knew what that meant, but my ears... And my brain didn't think that it was the truth. I says, what did you say? And he said it again. And okay. And then it dawned on me that I was leaving. I hung up the phone, obviously. 
and uh, went through the process of getting everything ready to leave jail. I was a few minutes later, they came back and got me and brought me up front. And there was a bonds person up there uh, who explained to me that they had bonded, my family had bonded me out. There were a lot of TV cameras and whatnot that were going to be outside. I just had to sign some paperwork, change my clothes. I could walk out the door. And that was quite shocking. I mean, I had been free three and a half years. Mm. And, uh, so I, I signed paperwork for the first time in three and a half years. I put on some street clothes and I walked out the door and I got to hug my mom and my sister and my cousin, my whole family. Uh, we're all out there. And the cameras were out there. A really emotional experience. Uh, they had, I had made mention, I guess, when I was in prison during a visit. And, you know, when I got out, I was going to have a big party with a limo. Uh, well, they had a limo bus waiting out there with my favorite pizza and soda on there. Uh, we all got on the bus, went had a big old party at a local bar. And a bunch of fam our family and friends showed up at the bar. It was just a really good homecoming. Nice. You know, I knew there was still some work to do. You know, we had a trial that was going to come up. But it was the first real positive thing that happened in a long time. Yeah. Yeah. That I, I was going to say that the trial is still scary. You, you look, I mean, let's face it. You've been through a trial, you know, you're innocent. You've been through a trial. And, and even though you've got a lot going for you this time and you, you seem, it seems like the playing the field is, is, you know, it is level. It's still, it's still frightening. That's still got to be terrifying. Oh, it is. It's, uh, you know, it, creates a lot of anxiety to say the least but this time i'm actually out and i was able to actively take part in helping joel right which is huge people don't realize how huge that is it's very huge and and it's very valuable not just to me but to the lawyer you know to be able to have those conversations that aren't in the jail you know he can pick up the phone and call you right then and say Hey, who's so and so? And you can say, "Oh, that's so and so." He goes, "Okay." And instead of waiting two days, right? And uh, so it, it was really refreshing to be able to do that. I was you know, able to move in at my parents' house and have a place to stay, and uh, again, actively take part in this trial that was coming up. And then, uh, as came up, it was coming up pretty quick in, in October. There were things going on, and Pam Hupp, she's the kind of person that, uh, well, you've heard the joke about lawyers that you can tell they're lying when their lips are moving. Right. Well, that's Pam Hupp, and that's also Leah Askey. I think they learned how to lie from each other because you could ask Pam Hupp the same question five times, and you would get five different answers, very different answers. And that's what they did. But that was their star witness. <laughs> Uh, that they never wanted to investigate any further. Well, while I was locked up, her mom died under suspicious circumstances. That really oh, is still suspicious to this day. Uh, I'll go as far as saying that everybody knows that she killed her, but the police in that case also dropped the ball and didn't collect enough evidence, and so she'll never be convicted of that one. Uh, that was well, a very... Didn't she inherit everything? Um, 
she didn't inherit as much as she said she was going to inherit. She had to split that with some of her siblings. So she only got about $100,000 or so out of that. She said she was getting like a million or a half a million. That was not true. But fact remains, her mom died mysteriously. And then here I am running around. She's changing her story. Uh, now she's saying that her and my wife were lesbian lovers. And then uh, she came up with, uh, she saw me outside the house with, in a strange car with somebody else when she dropped Betsy off. Uh, what else did she had? Oh, she had been saying all along that there was some letter on Betsy's computer that Betsy had wrote to her, but she never got. Uh, numerous other things. Well, the letter actually finally found this mysterious letter. And uh, Joel shows it to me one day in his office in October. And I'm an IT professional. I went to school for it. So I know a lot about computers. I, I tell people all the time, I know more about computers than most people want to know. But when something goes wrong with your computer, you want to know somebody like me. Right. Uh, I said, I took a look at a couple things on that document. And I said, that can, that document wasn't written on that computer. Joel looked at me and he said, well, how do you know that? And I said, pointed out the fact that one thing said the author of the document was unknown. Now, just to give you a layman's quick, low-down, dirty lesson on computers. If I set up a computer, I don't care how many accounts on it are on it. You have to sign in to set computer. And you sign in under our own account. If you author a document, make a document, Word, or anything like that, it will have your name attached to it. Or whatever account signed in attached to it only way that it can have unknown author is if it originated somewhere other than that computer because the computer doesn't know who wrote it <laughs> right and i pointed that out well joel obviously he had experts that it experts he turned that over to that guy immediately and the guy corroborated what exactly what i said and it was written in a form of word that was not on my computer, on that computer at the time. Right. So that was red flags all over that document. So that was a really big thing. Did they get uh, to present that? It, did he get to cross-examine? We uh, did. We got to use that. that. Uh, we got to use that and trial the second time. Uh, then the other thing that Joel came up with just a few weeks before trial, and my cousin Barry and I, uh, went in to meet with him and she and I had already been discussing the fact that we didn't really trust Lincoln County jury. Uh, they convicted me and they got it wrong the first time around. By that time, I'd already heard of this guy, Ryan Ferguson, who literally got out of prison the week that I went in prison, the same prison. And I knew a lot of the same people that he did. I knew a lot about his case by that point. And I knew that he was convicted by a jury from Lincoln County. So I really was not having a lot of faith in Lincoln County. So when Joel mentioned to my cousin and I that he had this great idea about having what they call a bench trial and then explaining that a bench trial 
is okay. without a jury and that the judge hears everything and even the stuff that normally they sent the jury away for said you know the downfall of this is if you lose the chances for appeal are slim and none but if you win it's hands down and barry and i didn't even have to think about it we looked at one another and we kind of have that unspoken communication between us and that yeah let's do that that was a really good decision on our part uh, because again judge Omer is a fair guy listening everything very intently and all of the information uh, so we we asked he wasn't happy about that because she likes to play to an audience and in fact during the trial she kept trying to play to an audience that wasn't there uh, she was admonished. Yeah, she she was admonished multiple times, like a high schooler from a judge, for acting out and basically trying to do the judge's job like she did in the first trial. You know, and the judge even told her at one point. He said, "You're the party. I'm a judge, and I'm the one that's doing this job. You you'll do yours, uh, basically." And we went through that trial. It took several days. Uh, another thing that happened was early on, even before the first trial, there was mention of 130 some pictures of the crime scene, my house that showed my guilt, showed a trail of blood with lip. However, camera malfunctioned and those pictures didn't turn out. We never got any not turned out film we never got any corrupt computer files was a digital camera anything up until about two weeks before the trial joel receives a package from leah askey's office and it had a dvd in there with 130 some pictures on there that showed not what the police said they showed right so this was no bloody footprints no no blood trail at all <laughs> not no evidence of cleanup nothing it didn't show anything that they said and this was really big so we were like oh we're going to keep this under our hat till the time comes joel printed out all the pictures and uh mike merkel mike merkel was a guy who uh he was the guy who took those pictures little squirrely guy he testified in court the first time how they did to turn out what he saw in those pictures you know, with his naked eye and whatnot. And, uh, you know, he, so they don't, work, they don't realize. So the prosecution doesn't realize that their office just released this to you guys and that there's actual photos on there. Right. Well, we know Leah Askey didn't send them. Somebody from her office did. So we don't know who that person was to this day. The movie makes it out as like it was an assistant or something like that because they just had to sign a face with a name. Right. But, Obviously, there was somebody that believed in doing the right thing. Right. Well, also, I'd like to point this out, too. I don't know if you, you know, so I was, you know, when I was locked up in prison and I was writing guys stories, I would often you would hear one thing from the FBI or the investigators, and then I would order the Freedom of Information Act. And what I realized right away, or eventually, I guess, is that one, you know, the left hand doesn't know what the right hand's doing. And so 
I would get stuff. You'd have the Freedom of Information Act would give me documents that the FBI said didn't exist. Mm-hmm. Or they would say that that was completely lost. We don't have it. The last person to have seen that computer was this person, and we believe that it was sold and it's gone. And then you'd find out that the Secret Service actually had it. Or you'd find out that they had it in storage and that, you know, these are massive organizations. So, you know, you guys put in a discovery motion. Somebody is assigned at that office to fulfill that. And, you know, Leah Thomas may just be like, you know, she's she's not thinking anything of it and doesn't realize her assistant just went and grabbed the stuff that she said doesn't exist and mm-hmm. send it to you. Like, you know, you just don't know. There's so many things going on in these departments or in these, you know, uh, these offices that it may it may have been a mistake. It may have been the truth. Maybe somebody said, nah, this isn't right. I'm sending this to them. But it may have also just been. Yeah, it could have been. Yeah. Either we don't way. know. And I don't know if we ever will. Uh, however, when we got through the trial and uh, this time around, things went quite a bit differently. And when, you know, <laughs> uh, when Leah asked, he called Mr. Mike Markle up to the stand. Uh, and he was talking about these photos left and right, you know, and, and swearing to all this stuff. And Joel gets up there and cross-examine him. You know, he says, you know, hey, this and that. He's still talking about these photos that didn't turn out. Joel gives him every opportunity to get out of it. But he kept digging the hole deeper for himself. (laughs) And then Joel produced this vanilla folder. It was about two inches, three inches thick. (laughs) And starts flipping through the pictures. Leah, at that point, looks back where it isn't. Where the fuck did he get those? (laughs) <laughs> uh, and the look on Mike Merkel's face was like a deer in the headlights as Joel had him thumb through at least a half a dozen pictures does that show absolutely nothing does that show absolutely nothing does that show absolutely nothing until the judge stopped it. and then Joel says what you're saying is the pictures didn't show what you wanted them to show so you said they showed absolutely nothing he had no answer for that so he basically perjured himself multiple, multiple times all over court. Uh, that was the first real home run uh, that I saw in the case. You know, it was like a big shining light. And But then there was more to go on. And uh, we just, this judge was fair and let things happen the way they should have happened the first time. And we got down to the end of the trial. And the he took a recess and the judge had said that he wasn't going to render his decision that day. But I think he had changed his mind at some point, but we were all outside. Uh, Joel, my cousin, Mary, a couple friends and I were by somebody's car. Joel's associate, Nate, Nate Swanson, a great guy. Uh, he was up in the courtroom. Your attorneys are obligated if the prosecution makes any kind of an offer less than your sanity. They're obligated to tell you that. And uh, obviously Leah Askey got a little uh, nervous. I don't know, but she made an offer to Nate. Nate called down and told Joel. And Joel said that, you know, if I would uh, plead the manslaughter that I would, uh, she'd give me soft life. And I said, she could take that. 
and shove it straight up her ass. And I wasn't going to plead to anything other than anything more than a parking ticket, not even a parking ticket. I wasn't going to accept anything less than an apology from her. And it was taking a long time. Joel was getting a little nervous. We since found out that there was a malfunction with the printer. <laughs> and that's what took the judge so long. But the judge should be writing his brief and he called us all back to the courtroom. He decided to release his decision. He had a very long statement about the investigation being more troubling and bringing up more questions than it did answers. And uh, he went on for I don't know, it could have been five minutes, it could have been five hours, because I only wanted to hear what he said at the end. And I waited for that, uh, then there with my two attorneys at my side, and when he came to the end and said, you know, the account to the account of murder in the first degree finds you not guilty, and then armed criminal action, I find you not guilty. At that point, I was glad that my two attorneys were there, because Nate Swanson was well, he kind of works out that he's a big, strong guy. and I didn't have any feeling left in my legs, so he was holding me up. Uh, that was one of the best things, best days of my whole life. Mm. So then I was truly free. You know, I, I'd gotten free a few months prior in June, but uh, in November, it was confirmed. I, I wasn't going to go back to prison ever. Uh, that, was, that was a big deal, and I got to walk out of there you know, with my head held high and uh, family and friends support me and it was just a wonderful day and I thought you know this is the beginning of the rest of my life you know now I can go about trying to put the pieces of my life back together and that's what I intended to do I mean it's still you know n not that you shouldn't be thankful you know and grateful but w what a horrific thing to have happened, bro. Like, you're just living your life, and this is thrust upon you. I mean, it, it, it's really a, a shitty situation, and it could have, you know, so easily gone the other way. You know, like, yeah. you, you know, and, and I'm thankful every day for for the people that were involved in, in me being here right now because... You know, now we're talking something that happened in 2011. I was convicted in 2013. We're now in 2023. Mm. Yeah, I'm state of Missouri for an appeal is 10 years. I can still be in prison right now, which pretty amazing. I've been out for eight years now. Mm. Uh, I'm very thankful for that. And I think, you know, I, I didn't get jailhouse religion. I was, I was religious guy before I went into prison involved at my church everybody's heard of jailhouse religion but I actually was able to be involved in saving a couple guys while I was locked up that was really a good feeling for me uh, but I did a lot of praying while I was in there and relied on the good lord and I think that things do happen for a reason we hear that all the time and sometimes bad things happen to good people I think well, he put me through some stuff that he, you never know what you can accomplish. And I think that he gives you the tools to accomplish it when he needs you to do it. And I think the reason for that is so that I can come out here and talk about these things to people like yourself and others and reach as many people as I can so that it doesn't happen to other folks.
Right. Yeah, definitely. I, I, I definitely am a big believer in that. So, so how's Pam doing? Because I know this isn't the end of the story. <laughs> no, you know it's not. <laughs> and, uh, this is name. That who I am also knows that. Uh, so I thought about uh, going to try and get my life back together again. Living at my parents' house because I lost everything. Right. Uh, so there was another insurance, po- actually more insurance policies that Pam never was able to get to uh, that I was able to collect on. And uh, then I went about suing State Farm because I didn't think that deserved that money. And I thought it was, should have been mine. Well, I won that case. I got that money too. And Joel turned over all of the information in my case to the U.S. attorneys. And they were looking at the case. Well, we think that Leah Askey somehow probably informed Pam of that. And Pam got nervous. And what Pam did, she went out, for lack of a better term, she went out hunting for a human, for another victim. And in, uh, what was it, August, I believe, of 2000. 17, 18. Uh, she approached a young lady that lived across the street from Fritz and tried to coax her into her car. Actually, a girl got into her car and then had better thoughts of it and got back out of the car. And then when Pam realized that this gal had uh, security cameras on her house, she hightailed it out of there. Uh, about a week after that, uh, Pam Hupp approached a guy near near in St. Charles, which is nearby where she lived, about 15, 20 minutes away. And he was a handicapped individual had been in a uh, accident years before and basically had the mentality of an 11 or 12-year-old. Really couldn't walk or move around that fast. Again, lower mentality because of his accident. She took advantage of that, offered him money like she did the previous person to come back and reenact the uh, a Dateline phone call. She was putting herself out there as the producer of Dateline, even to the gal that she tried to approach a week prior. She took this man back to her house, and however, she got him in there, and she unloaded a thirty-eight revolver into him, five shots, and shot it cold blood. And when that happened, obviously, police were called. And uh, just so happened, my father knew somebody that lived on the same street, called him at work, and he called me and let me know that Pam killed some clock. What? That's okay. And I immediately called Joel, and then I called Chris Hayes from the news. And sure enough, she had shot this gentleman. Uh, Joel obviously like, hey, did pipe you got nothing to worry about you you know she is you actually did have something to worry about i did like like i knew at the time as soon as i found out i knew i said it has to do with you he's going to implicate me in this i don't know why or what i've met this woman before my ordeal like not even a half a dozen times but for whatever reason she hates me so fair enough she put a note in this guy's pocket 
put some money in his pocket and tried to implicate me. Initially, she said she didn't know anybody named Russ because she had my name on this note. But the police in O'Fallon weren't stupid. They knew of the case and they watched the news and they knew what she was doing. They're like, okay. And uh, what the note say? It said something about getting Russ's money and be, how to leave the body outside my mom's house. Had very instructions like I had wrote the note, but it was written real messy like it was written by like two-year-old um and that'll come up here in a minute uh actually that following weekend i had plans with a friend of mine to go to nearby lake of the ozarks which is a couple mile, a couple of hundred miles west of here uh for a weekend trip so i went out of town for a weekend trip i don't care whatever's gonna happen is gonna happen and uh, i no sooner got there this was a new friend that i had since my ordeal and met at a motorcycle rally and so i explained to this person who i was I'm like if you're gonna hang out with me and be my friend uh you might want to know this about this is who i am this is what i've been going through the past several years of my life and oh by the way the person that i was just telling you about that killed my wife she just killed somebody else the other day and i'm probably going to get a call from my lawyer sometime this weekend <laughs> And uh, this person was flabbergasted. She was like, what? Uh, and within five minutes of me facing that conversation, I got a call from Joel Schwartz. He said, well, the police want to question you. <laughs> and I said, yeah, I kind of figured they would. Because I figured Pam would implicate me. I says, but again, I'm three hours away. and I'm not coming back. <laughs> I'll be back on Monday. If they want to talk to me, they could talk to me after that time. But I'm going to enjoy my weekend because if I'm getting arrested, I'm going to have fun for a couple days first. Right. Because uh, at that point, I'm like, you know, she might have done enough to get me arrested again. Who knows? So I enjoyed my weekend and came back and uh, Joel was actually out of town and sent one of his partners to the police station with me to go up there for questioning. And the police said, you know, hey, we're just... Just want we to have, we have to talk to you. We don't buy this law. We don't suspect you. You know? and they kept reiterating this. I, I was put at ease as soon as I went into the building. And uh basically they had me write this note. They they produced the note. I had to write it, I think, ten times with my right hand, ten times with the left hand, so that they could, you know, make sure it wasn't me that wrote it. They're just doing their job. I even volunteered, gave him my phone for three days. I'm like, here, go through it. You can see all the text on it. You can see where the phone's been. I have nothing to hide. And uh, so that's what they did. They did a thorough investigation. And then a few days later, they arrested Pam and charged her with the murder of Louis Gumpenberg. Hmm. And uh, yeah, so they went They went about uh, preparing for a trial uh, here in San Francisco. Didn't it show that, like, she said she didn't know the guy, had just shot him when he came in the house, but actually her phone had been at his apartment complex when she picked him up. Like, the pings had her at multiple uh, locations where he was. It's just And, and even, they even uh, placed her at a Dollar Tree, and she had a receipt for the knife that he had in his hand for 
the the pen that was written that the note was written on and the notebook everything and not to mention that she put like a a carpet remnant down in her hallway right where she figured he would fall if you look at the crime scene photos there was a carpet remnant placed there carefully she didn't want to ruin she didn't want to ruin her carpet yeah Yeah. Wow. I didn't hear that. It's absolutely incredible. So, you know, she gets arrested for this, and the star witness is going to be this gal that she approached a week prior. Uh, girl by the name of Carol McAfee. And uh, because she actually called when she saw the story, she's like, she had called the police after that happened. And the police, you know, Fallon, they called St. Charles County. The police in O'Fallon were working on this case. The St. Charles County police called up and said, hey, you might want to talk to this girl we talked to last week because she might have some information for you. So they came and got her and brought her down there and questioned her and found out it was the same person. So they could put, you know, things together for her calculating trying to kill people. And, uh, Again, like I said, the woman lived across the street from one of my best friends. And so I got the opportunity to meet her, and uh, we made friends in that. And we're preparing for this trial. Carol uh, is actually going through a divorce with her husband uh, at the time. I'm trying to help her. I'm like, you know, this is going to make you quite famous. This this trial, is this person has a lot of stuff around him got to do with me and everything's been on dateline a whole bunch of times by this time uh, this day right now I've been on dateline six times that's the record <laughs> uh, I don't recommend it for anybody <laughs> no don't normally get on there for good things but uh, in my case I did uh, so I got to become friends with this gal named Carol uh, kind of start getting feelings for one another and that but uh, we kept those to ourselves at the time and uh, eventually I took an Alfred plea a couple of years ago here and what is that based is that an Alfred plea is a cop out uh, it, it's just I think it's not but it basically says I'm not admitting any guilt but if we went to trial, the prosecution has enough evidence to convict. Right. Yeah. But I'm not guilty. I'm not saying I'm guilty. But you do have to. You do have to say it in court. And when she had to say that, she struggled with those words that she had to say guilty. You know, for that Alford plea. But the judge forced it out of her, and she went to prison tried to appeal the offered plea saying that her lawyers coerced her into it, but th that wasn't going to happen. Uh, but more importantly, uh, shortly after he was convicted of that crime, there is a new prosecutor in Lincoln County by the name of Mike Wood. And Mike Wood had a press conference in which he announced that he was bringing charges against Pam Pup, my wife's murder. And he also went on to say that uh, 
his investigation was raising a lot of questions and and was showing evidence of corruption and so that he would be his team would not be coming from lincoln county he was using resources outside of lincoln county so that his information remained sure and all the information in the case is being stored neighboring bay charles county he's using some retired uh detectives who are less corruptible than than most you know i won't say uncorruptible because nobody is above that but i'd say these are some really good guys and he's investigating police and prosecution in this case and most recently this last year or so mr mike Merkel, remember that guy who told you with the pictures that perjured himself right well he got charges brought against him not for perjury but, you know, there is an internal affairs investigation going in on this. And he was trying to strong arm one of those guys. He was uh, trying to strong arm. I don't, I'm not understanding. What do you mean? But trying to strong arm one of the internal affairs investigators. Him and his wife, Becky Markle, who Becky Markle was a crime scene investigator during my first case. And during my first trial, her name wasn't Becky Merkel. It was Becky something else. During my second trial, it was Becky Merkel. So she got married to Mr. Mike Merkel during that time. So him and his wife were outside of a Longhorn Steakhouse in St. Charles sending messages to this officer inside the steakhouse and sending him pictures of him and his patrol car and saying that they're going to say that he's drinking and they're going to ruin his career and all kinds of stuff and the phone they were using was a burner phone assigned to the DEA and the DEA agent who was assigned to is Mike Merkel's brother and now all three of them are facing charges well, so what were they trying to get him to do by strong, by, by by doing that do not to drop the investigation oh okay okay because there's more people involved it's not just Mike Merkel I think it goes He's just a little guy. Like I tell people all the time, if you're going to go after Al Capone, you go after the guy on the street. Yeah. You work your way up. So there's somebody above him, somebody above him, somebody above him. And Mike Merkel, I think, is the weakest link. So why I'm wondering why they didn't bring him up. It seems pretty clear that he perjured himself. Like, you know what I'm saying? That that seems like a slam dunk charge. They've got him in the first trial. You know, the transcripts of the first trial, they got the second trial. Well, that seems like a pretty easy charge also, but but I guess that's a bigger okay. charge. I'm sorry? Statute of limitations. Poetry oh. is like, I think... Like three years, is it? Two years, three years? Three years, if I'm not mistaken. And it's been... I've been out for eight, so... Uh, but he did this to himself now, and I... I looking forward to them bringing charges against people that there is no statute of limitations for what they did. Like Brian McCarrick, the guy who called me out of my cell twice without my attorney. That's a violation of your civil rights, your constitutional rights. And that there, uh, that's a federal offense. And I, I just don't understand what these guys get out of doing these types of things. Like, like you've got job security, you, you just have to go through the motions to keep your job. 
you don't have to go around bullying people and, 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 you know, coercing them and, 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 um, you know, you know, creating evidence and, and, you know, discarding evidence you, you don't have to be a, a lying manipulative prick to keep your job. Like no. why go out, why go out of your way to do things like why not you go through the process? I, I understand that there's pressure to make arrests, but you know what? Sometimes you don't make an arrest or at the very least, if you did an investigation and you zero in on the guy and you know, it's him, but you cannot get enough evidence to convict them. Well, then that happens. That's going right. to happen in your job. You can't, you can't bet a thousand all the time. I mean, right. you're going to bet have to the major league about 400 and that's only 40%. <laughs> you know, but uh, the way I look at it is, you know, there's good, bad people all over this world. If you take group of folks, doesn't matter who they are, a group of cops, there's going to be a percentage of them that are bad guys, a percentage of them that are good guys, and every percentage of them. Uh, in my particular case, I had a perfect storm of somebody trying to set me up. I had a bad prosecutor. I had a bad judge. I had a whole bunch of crooked cops. Does uh, that happen all the time? No. Do people get wrongfully convicted all the time? Yes. Uh, You've even got somebody on the jury that's yeah. tainted. Exactly. You know, and that, that person, I was going to say, even if that person isn't going out of their way, to throw the jury the fact is is that you know you shouldn't be on the jury right that's my cousin i mean that's kind of a no-brainer look at it but mm. again like i said i i had a perfect storm of events and not that i don't like law enforcement or police at all uh that's but damn quite the opposite you know but i don't like corrupt police and in fact in fact, this day, I've had one, one of those detectives actually apologize to me. That's never happened to anybody that's been wrongfully convicted. Yeah, that I don't I, know anybody, but yeah. I'm a unique individual in that respect. It was a sincere apology, and and the guy was really sorry. That, that meant a lot to me, you know, because... It's enough to do something wrong. We all make mistakes, but none of us are perfect. Right. And I don't expect anybody to be. But I make a mistake at my job. I own up to it. Yeah. You make a mistake in your job. You own up to it. You know, if you break something, you know, you're walking through a store and you knock a vase over, pick it up, go offer to at least offer to pay for it. You know, hey, I broke it. I made a mistake. I'm sorry. But yeah, I think. To try I mean, going under the rug like these cops do is is strong. No, I think owning up to look. I think owning up to making a mistake as quickly as possible. I think people are very forgiving of of mistakes. You know, they're they're not forgiving of liars. Exactly. And and if you go into Leah Askey's case, the prosecutor who's now named Leah Cheney, she's had more last names in a phone book, but uh, she her. Her high school gym teacher, which begs to me what was going on in high school, but that's another story altogether. She's doubled down even in the last dateline. She said, and I quote, that she's never been shown any evidence to prove that I was innocent. Now, my rebuttal to that and to her is that I've never been shown any evidence to prove that she's not a moron. <laughs> 
but you know that remains to be seen well i wonder so so they so they they've charged or they're looking into did they actually so they did charge pam yes she's been charged she just hasn't gone to trial oh no, no she hasn't got She's been charged. She hasn't gone to trial. She's gone to trial for the Lewis Gumpberger. She's serving life without plus 30 years, the very same sentence I had. Nice. Uh, I love all the call I really wanted for. <laughs> uh, but she's going to be serving. Uh, she's going to be tried in uh, my wife's murder. And we're hoping that we see that trial hopefully maybe by 2025. Now, I know it sounds like a long time, but there's a lot of information. And she's had a lawyer, one of her prosecute, or one of her public defenders passed away. And so they had to get a new lawyer, and now they're going through all kinds of other stuff. She's dragging her feet, trying to make it last as long as possible. Yeah, uh, because I think she just likes the attention. To be honest, but we're hoping for that trial to happen in 2025. Again, what I'm more hopeful about at this point, I know she's locked up forever, is is getting these dirty cops off the street because what they did to me, they're out there doing other folks, you know. Right. It's not right. There are other there are other municipalities now. None of them are in Lincoln County. So uh, Ryan McCarrick is actually allowed to teach at the police academy, which is really amazing because you know I think to be a teacher, to teach somebody how to be a good cop. You should probably be a good one yourself. Right. If I want to teach you, I work at a motorcycle shop. If I want to teach you about motorcycles, I got to know a little bit about. Yeah. My character doesn't know anything about being a good cop. It was everything about being a bad cop. And that, that scares me is that he's producing more bad cops by teaching those people that his ideals. Well, listen, is there anything we haven't talked about? Um, yeah, yeah, there is. <laughs> <laughs> uh, remember that gal I told you about, Carol? Uh, well, I are actually engaged to Mary. Oh, okay, nice. Is she in the next room? Uh, she's taking a nap right next to me right now. Oh, nice. <laughs> uh, she and I are engaged to be married. Uh, and we'll be married in October this year. Well, that's good. So things are working out. That's 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 my happy ending. You know, I'm not gonna say that all everything, all bad stories, all bad things have a happy ending and all bad clouds have a silver lining. But in my particular case, and at first too, I guess, you know, because she went through some bad things in marriage that she was in an abusive relationship with somebody and uh but we both found one another. And I think that's another, uh, going back to what I was saying earlier about uh, God and, and the good Lord and puts us in places that he needs us to be when we need to be there, when he wants us to be there. And right. he keeps her and I in one another's lives to help one another uh, do some hard stuff and to show each other that, that we were still worthy of being loved, you know, by somebody else. And that, uh, I'm looking forward to spending the rest of my life with it. Oh, I, that's, that is a happy ending. Doesn't well, get much happier than that. I just, no. Well, 
Boy, listen, you know, it's funny. Uh, I mean, I'm not sure all of the loose ends are tied up, but boy, it sounds like all the loose ends on yours. I'm sure they're probably not, but they're they're either tied up or they're in the process of getting tied up. Yeah, there's a lot of boxes that are getting checked right now. Again, I'm looking forward to this this current investigation. Uh, I've been cooperating with these guys as much as I can every time they have a question for me. You know, about something that happened 12 years ago. Yeah. I, I racked my brain and do my best to try and give the best information available to uh, to perform their job. And I'm, I'm hopeful that things are going to turn out real good. Well, I mean, I, I obviously, I hope it does. Um, it sure sounds like it's headed that way. So, well, listen, I, I, I really appreciate you coming on and, and you know, taking the time to, to talk with me. I know, you know, I know I was yesterday, I was looking at your stuff the last few days, you know, I've been looking at your stuff and, and I've been like, this is, I was texting you at the gym the other, the other morning. Was that yesterday yeah. morning? Yesterday morning I was at the gym and I was uh, telling my wife, I'm like, listen to this, listen to this. Cause as I was, as we were at the gym, I was listening to, um, different, uh, different stories on YouTube. I was like, oh my God, then she, she listened, she tried to frame him for having an attempted murder on her life. You know, it's just, I was like, this is insanity. But if you really want the uh, unabridged story, uh, there's a book out there called Bone Deep, Untangling the Betsy Faria Murder Case. Okay. It's uh, written by uh, Charles Bosworth, who's a best-selling author, and junction with my attorney, Joel Schwartz, who is a contributing factor in that book. And so that's, Everything in there is what happened. It's it's not like the movie, and it it, it goes into detail. Uh, somebody what wants did to you, see all the details. What did you? I mean, I'll put the link in the description. Um, but what did you think of the movie anyway? I mean, just in general. I mean, I know, you know, take into account that obviously they can't do you know five hundred hours. You know, for what they pulled out, do you think it was okay? Or I think that they did the best they could. With the time they had available, you know, they only had so many hours in a miniseries and then take away commercials and all that, that's even less hours to try and squeeze 10 years in. Right. Uh, I think they did a fine job with that. And, you know, they did a little overacting, like I said earlier, you know, and, and that's what, that's what thespians do. You know, that somebody acts foolish, then they're going to dress up like a clown, just get the message across. And so that's why I say about the comedy aspect, like I said earlier. I think the actor that portrayed me, Mr. Uh, Glenn Fleshler, uh, did a very fine job. The producers and writers were in constant contact with me throughout the production of this thing. And uh, I think they did, did a good job with what they had to work with. Again, I think Renee Zellweger was... <laughs> she was great. I thought she was good. Yeah. And I, I was I was interviewed by a local news channel uh when they first announced making that and and I made the comment to this young reporter I said well Renee you know she's an attractive woman she's really going to have to do something to ugly herself up <laughs> and they did a really good job I gotta did she say wait for it for that role did she gain weight uh, she actually wore a fat suit oh because she looked heavier yeah she wore a fat suit for that and they used a lot of prosthetics and makeup on her um, okay Fantastic with it. I really was impressed. And uh, I think they turned turned in something really good. Uh, again, it's not the whole story. If you want the whole story, there's the book. 
And then uh, hopefully within the next year or so, I'm writing my own book from my perspective. Uh, that So you got to come back on then. Yeah, I hope we gotta to. We got to push that one. Yeah. Listen, my subscribers are growing. I'll, in a couple of years, I might be at half a million. We'll see. That's awesome. Maybe you'd be a couple million. Maybe. Maybe a guy can dream. Yeah, All right. Well, well listen, I, I really do appreciate you coming on, and I I'm, I appreciate talking to you. And uh, uh, I, um, yeah, yeah, you've definitely got to come back on when you finish your book. Anytime, man. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for giving me the opportunity to, to share my story. Hey, that was my interview with Russ Faria, and I really appreciate you guys watching. If you like the video, do me a favor, hit the subscribe button. Hit the bell so you get notified of videos just like this. Share the video. Leave a comment for me. And I'm going to leave the the link in the description box for um, for the, the full story on the book that Russ's uh, attorney uh, was a co-author in. I think co-author. I'm not sure exactly. Anyway, we'll leave the description. And I really appreciate you guys uh, watching the video. So see ya.